you know, it's an interesting thing. Whenever you drive into your uh, your work, and you f you find your mailbox over here, and the posts are over here, and it's been sheared off at the base, like something happened. <laughs> we uh, Tom, we got to work yesterday, and somebody the night before had um, inadvertently disabled our mailbox. They ran it over, drug it across the ground, and then we got a phone call yesterday afternoon from um, Progressive Insurance. One of their clients um, was turning in a claim for the uh, damages, and fortunately they're going to write us a check, and so we're going to have our mailbox. Re Actually, Dave Kaz, he's really good. He by the end of the day, he had a new mailbox already up in place, and the, the progressive insurance knew about that, too. <laughs> it's like, well, they're aware of the situation. But, you know, whenever you see something like that, you think, something here happened. How did that happen? So when Tom and Dave went down, I said, could you get a picture of that? Um, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but um, it's just, at first we thought it was the snowplow. You know, obviously it's the snowplow guy that, you know, he had the wing out, boom, he got it. We put reflectors on it, but um, whenever they went out and looked, the snowplow would have been on the wrong side of the road to nail it like it did. And we had one 4 by 4 post, and then for our snow shield, we had two 4 by 6 posts, and they were all sheared. So whoever hit it, they got an owie on their vehicle, <laughs> something severe. But, you know, whenever you see something like that, you know something has happened. There's evidence that we see that something has happened. Let's have prayer. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, as we look into your scriptures, Father, we have evidence that you do love us, that your grace is so amazing. Father, we cannot fathom the depths of your grace, but as we look at the evidences that we see in the world around us, even in the, the geese flying north and south, Father, in just your creation, um, in everything that we've talked about this morning, Father, your hand is in it. And so we just thank you, Father, that we can just look a little deeper into the science and into the scriptures and see that you have been guiding all along. And Father, you have not given up on us. You have a trajectory for us that we cannot even fathom. But, Father, it's to be closer to you, and that's your desire. So draw us closer to you as we go through this. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. It um, it's just fascinates me, the whole, and I, you know, I keep going back to this, the whole Apollo mission. You know, NASA is working on Artemis. Artemis is the twin of Apollo, if you look in Greek mythology. NASA is working on a plan, and they're going to be launching it later this year, early next year, to send a spacecraft to go back to the moon, and their intention is to, re, to, re, to set up a, an outpost at the moon to do that as a simulator so they can go to Mars. And it's just fascinating to see what they're doing, but then you look back at the technology they had in the late... 1960s and the technology they had they did a lot with it but you look at the Apollo 8 mission one of the things that they brought back from that mission is the first color picture taken by a man from the moon of the earth you know 
they go all that way, 250,000 miles roughly, to the moon. And what do they take a picture of? The earth. Couldn't they have done it closer? But the picture is so amazing because it's coming up over the moon, and they call it earth rise. Instead of moon rise, it's earth rise. And then in Apollo 17, the last mission to the moon, they got on, on the voyage back, they took a full image of the moon. The earth rises, the moon was here, the, the earth is back here. They got a full picture of it. And the question is, how in the world did they get there? Well, it's really interesting when you look at, and, you know, I upgraded my phone. I've got an iPhone 7 now, and Siri and I have a lot of interesting conversations Did you know that 300 years before the birth of Christ, about that time, there was a gentleman named Aristarchus of Samos, and he proposed a theory called heliocentrism, which basically says that the sun is the center of the known universe. So all of our solar system is orbiting around the sun. Have you heard of something so crazy as that? At that time, that was insane to think that the sun was the center of the earth. Everybody knew that the earth was the center of the universe and everything orbited around the earth. But 300 years before the birth of Christ, he came up with this theory. But then you look, it wasn't until the late or the mid-1500s when Nicholas Copernicus published a book called On the Revelation, Revolutions of Celestial Spheres. And he came up with, in 1543, the idea that the sun is the center of the known universe. Aristarchus of Samos said that 300 years before the birth of Christ. What happened in that time period? Greek mythology and everything, they were trying to track this, but then with Christianity coming up, Christianity took a right-hand turn, and they started going into tradition. So whenever, and I've told my boys this many times, every time you see technology increase, if you look back a little bit, you'll see that the understanding of the Bible has increased. God was working, but in 300 B.C., they were on this trajectory. What would have happened to the then-known world? They had steam engines back then. Did you know that? They had batteries back then. But what happened Everything got trenched in self, and it got into self-worship and all these things, and then Christianity took a right-hand turn, and it was all about the church instead of the relationship with Christ. So what happened? Down to the Dark Ages. It took almost 2,000 years to dig out of that, and 1543, when did Martin Luther nail the thesis on the Wittenberg door? 1517. 30 years after, roughly 30 years after Luther nails the thesis to the door, the Enlightenment starts opening up people's minds. Whenever they realized that the earth was not the center of the universe, but that the sun was the center of the universe, that opened up navigation because now you could, before they, whenever they would go, whenever they navigate the ships, they would always stay close to the, the shore because they could recognize the waypoints. But there were times that, you know, they didn't know where they were. But now that you have the sextant and the compass and all these other modern inventions, what happens? Now you can go because you've got a a physical point of reference in the sky. And they finally, you know, they started realizing, hey, around the, the, um, you've got the Big Dipper here and the Little Dipper here and you've got the North Star. It doesn't change its position. 
We can trust that. They've got a reference point. So all these things are starting to develop, and as technology develops, what happens to the technology? It blesses people. When people are blessed, economy increases, and families are healthier, and all these things. God has a purpose through all these things. And so whenever Nicholas Copernicus published his book, they're kind of like, yeah, I don't think so. But then Sir Isaac Newton published his work in 1687, and everybody's like, there's something to this. So then later scientists, they publish works. You look at our pews. They are ran, they're not randomly spaced. In our church back in Decatur, <laughs> Bethany's laughing. <laughs> Whenever you get up from prayer, you push the pew away from you. So this end is this far apart. This other end is this far apart. These are anchored down. It's a blessing to have them anchored down because you can predict and you can give a little push and you know you're not going to push the person over in front of you or something like that. There's, there's, there's sequence, there's order in these things. Do you realize God has an order in the universe? From the, you have the sun, and then you go out so far, and you have the planet. What's the next planet, kids? No? Guess again. It starts with an M. Mercury. What comes after Mercury? Venus. What's unique about Venus? It's not because she's mom and all that stuff. Venus is opposite every other planet. Venus' north pole is where the south pole is and all the other planets. What comes after Venus? Anybody ever been to... Anybody ever been to Earth? What's after Earth? Mars. What's after Mars? What's after Jupiter? Saturn. What's after Saturn? What's after Uranus? Neptune. Every planet from Mercury to Uranus is on a fixed orbit. Neptune's doing its own little thing out here, but you basically the, the theory is, and actually it's kind of a rule, it's not a law because there are variations to it, but you take the distance from the Earth to the Sun and you divide that by 10, and so then you go from one planet, so Mercury, double the distance from the Earth to Mercury is the next area where the next planet's going to orbit. The next planet would be going... So you got Mercury, then who's next? Venus. So Venus is twice as far from the sun as Mercury is. Then you double that again, so you got two, then four, then two, four, eight, sixteen. Every planet from Mercury all the way out to Uranus is on that path. Now, like I said, Neptune's doing its own thing, and Pluto is kind of not a planet, but there are actually other planets that are not truly planets, but they are bigger than Pluto that are orbiting out there. What's really interesting is between Mars and who's after Mars? Jupiter. There's a gap. Now, it's not the gap theory, but there's a gap. It's called the asteroid belt. Imagine, you know, you have to kind of bear with me here. Imagine if you take a stick of dynamite and you shove it into a pumpkin and you light it, what's it going to do? It's going to go boom. (laughs) What happens to the pumpkin? It's in pieces. Is it all together? No, it's all over the place. You ever ever noticed on the moon, what's the dominant feature on the moon? Pockmarks. What's the dominant feature on all the planets? Craters and all these things. What happened? There's a theory, in, you know, creationists have their theory, evolutionists have their theory. Something happened to this planet between Mars and Jupiter, 
and there's a lot of debris out there. But if you pack up all that debris, it's not even as big as, it's twice as big as the moon that orbits Pluto. So it's not very big, but something did happen out there. And how did we get to the, how did we get to the moon? We believed the theory that Aristarchus of Samos taught. We believed what Nicholas Copernicus taught. We believed what Sir Isaac Newton taught. Even, in fact, whenever the astronauts were going from Earth to Moon, they says, well, Newton's in the driver's seat because they aimed the trajectory to intercept the Moon and then orbit that and then come back. Apollo 8, like I told you last time, whenever they did that Earth burn to get out of Earth orbit, the engines didn't work right. They were praying in NASA, especially when they got to the Moon because if the engines didn't burn in that retrograde to get into orbit, they would have kept going. They were praying at NASA that it would burn, and it burnt perfectly. And they were praying again that whenever it left orbit, it would burn properly, and it did burn properly. God was answering prayers. Apollo 13 was like one of the biggest prayer meetings this earth has ever had because every church, every faith, everybody was praying for the astronauts. Enemy, friend, everybody. You know, it was the largest prayer meeting that God It's probably heard in a long time, and we need more of those, not because of disasters, just to turn our hearts to the Lord. But things aren't what they appear. When Apollo 8 took that picture of the Earth and they sent it back, people said, wow, Earth's pretty fragile. Look at that. What was going on at the time whenever Apollo 8 took that picture in 1968? We had Vietnam going on. We had all the race riots. The Democratic National Convention was just chaotic. They told the astronauts, once one person sent a tele- telegram to the astronauts saying, you saved 1968. You put a, something bright and hopeful in this year because assassinations and wars and everything were going on. When Apollo 17 came back, they took that picture. What happened with that picture? The environmental movement started with that picture. There are many people in the environmental movement says our movement began when this picture came back. What is the environmental movement pushing? Worship of the earth. Now, it's not bad to want to have regard for our planet so we, we take good care, we're good stewards, but we don't need to worship it. And there's a lot of leaning towards that where we're trying to take away people's rights because they're taking, they're doing damage to the earth. That's not where God intends for us to go. But th- do you see how the enemy, he takes the truth and he puts, turns it on a right angle and says, this is not where I want you to focus? Our focus at Apollo 8, whenever they had that message coming back from the moon, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you imagine watching a nationwide broadcast, a worldwide broadcast, and hearing them reading Genesis chapter 1. Now, some of us were not, I was two years old, so I don't remember it much, but some of you probably remember that. What was that like to hear the, command, the first chapter of Genesis being read from the moon? They actually picked up that signal in Australia, and they relayed it through the phone circuits to Houston. It was just amazing what was done to make that possible. In all of these things, God has a purpose and a plan. But the enemy wants to hide God's grace. Okay, think of this. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 40. 
We got some little ones here. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. This is about Jesus when he was just a little guy. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. What does that word grace mean? It means the divine influence on the heart and its reflection in the life. Let's read that again. Grace is the divine influence on the heart and its reflection in life. So do we want to exhibit God's grace? Absolutely, because look at Jesus. This is his, God's grace is upon him because he was perfectly reflecting God's character. And then if you go on to Luke chapter 2, verse 52, go to 51 first. Then he, came, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Now that word subject is obedience. He was obedient to his parents. Even though he had just been in, he had just been with this. Whenever Jesus went to the temple, this is a little bit out of context, but when Jesus was in the temple, and remember what he said to the, the religious leaders we talked about in our Sabbath school class, Sue brought that up. When Jesus was there, he amazed them at his knowledge of the scriptures. He was telling them things that the religious leaders hadn't even yet thought about. It's like telling them, no, the earth isn't the center of the universe. It's actually the sun. He was telling them things out of the scriptures. The Messiah is going to do this. The Messiah is going to do that. And they said, no, the Messiah is going to do this. No, scripture says. And he said it with such convicting power that they said, this boy is on to something. But his parents came and they said, no, we need to go back home. And he subjected himself. And Luke 2.51 is referencing that. But verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and the next word, and in favor. Do you know what the definition of favor is? Favor is the divine influence on the heart and its reflection in the life. It's the same Greek word as grace. Favor and grace are the same Greek word. Jesus exhibited God's character by the influence, the divine influence was reflecting from his life. All through his life, he was always reflecting God's character through what he was doing. God's grace is the unmerited favor of God. Let's look at the universe really quick. How many stars? Okay, back up. In our galaxy, we live in the Milky Way. There are 400 million stars in our galaxy alone. 400 million. Actually, 400 billion. Got the 400 billion stars in our galaxy. Do you know how many galaxies that we've seen so far through the telescopes and everything? 100 billion. So you take 400 billion and multiply that times 100 billion. You got a four with 22 zeros. Four with 22 times 10 to the 22 power. That's a lot of stars. And what's going around all the stars? Planets. Whenever Jesus fed the, the 5,000, you know, we got a lot of kids here today. How many people did he actually feed? Well, 5,000 men, heads of families, and probably four to eight to 10 kids per family plus mom. Let's just say there's mom and dad and eight kids. You feed 5,000 family units. How many people did you actually just feed? That's a lot of people off of 
the, bar, the loaves and the fishes, just a few. God has four to the 22 power stars out there with planets potentially orbiting them that are occupied, inhabited. How big is God's grace? He's focusing all of his energy on this little planet here. He sent his son here to die so that we cannot just be accepted into the universe, but we're elevated like Daniel in chapter 1. When Daniel and his three friends were tested, they were, ex- they were accelerated in their, in their positions to be in the king's court. Word as God wants to be. What does the Bible say? Behold what manner of love. What does it say? Behold what manner of love, God, that we should be called the servants and slaves of God, the sons and daughters of God. He wants us to be his sons and daughters. Do, does mom and dad put the kids out in the pole barn and live in the house all by themselves? No. It's a family unit. God wants us to dwell in his home throughout all eternity. But there's one caveat to that. Will you let him do that? In Daniel chapter 1, there's an interesting story that goes through Daniel. And we covered a little bit of it today. And it's Sometimes whenever I teach the lesson, it's like, and then I have the sermon afterwards, it's like, ooh, I want to cover that. I want to get that to that. Daniel chapter 1, God introduces himself to, Nebi, to King Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And in Daniel chapter 1, verse 20, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar wanted these four boys in his, in his immediate he wanted these boys because he knew these guys were smart. You want the smart guys with you. Even if they're wherever, they're smart. I want them with me. I want them to be my with me. Daniel chapter 2, verse 47. After they go through this whole thing, they were threatened with death, but they said, no, we're going to go to the king. We're going to talk to the king. Daniel 2, 47. The king says, the king answered Daniel and said, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. So now King Nebuchadnezzar has a little bit closer in picture of what their God is really like. You know, whenever Aristarchus of Samos theorized this, everybody's like, eh. then Copernicus comes along almost 2,000 years later and says, I think he's right. I think he's on to something. And then Sir Isaac Newton comes on board and says, I think you're right. Then they take a picture from the spacecraft like, yep, they were definitely right. We got there and we're back. Daniel chapter 3, verse 29. This is King Nebuchadnezzar saying, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be what? Cut in pieces. And their houses shall be made with an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Well, God surely appreciated his devotion, but he's like, that's not my kingdom. We're not going to chop people up because they don't accept me. So God has one more thing to tell Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 26. Go on from there. 
And inasmuch as they gave the see Daniel chapter 4, sorry, um, verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Notice this next verse. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing he does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, this God is above all other gods. He is the true living God. He goes on to say in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Okay, the king of heaven. What is the domain of the king, king of heaven? The universe. This is the God of the, the God, the creator God of the universe. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, and notice there's no threats in this. He's just saying, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Does that sound anything like the first angel's message? We'll get there. I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth in his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. He is given evidence. God put me down, but because of his amazing grace, he has raised me back up and given me my throne back, verse 36. So Nebuchadnezzar went from chapter 1, oh, these guys are pretty smart. Chapter 2, wait, this God does something. Chapter 3, everybody has to worship him. Now, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a relationship with him. And it's really interesting when you get in Daniel chapter 5, Daniel gets to talk to his grandson, Belteshazzar, and says, you knew these things, but you ignored it. This is why you're going to be destroyed tonight. He had a knowledge of these things. But then you have the arch rebel, Isaiah chapter 14. You have Lucifer. What does he say? He says, I will do this. I will do that. Isaiah chapter 14, verse um, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. When it says you who weaken the nations, Lucifer's position in heaven was the chief ambassador, just like Daniel was with the king's with later in his life, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, Lucifer was the number one representative of God to the universe. He weakened the nations, but then something was found in him. You have said in your heart, let's see, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. Notice how many times he says, I. He has taken his focus off of God and God's amazing grace, and he's put it on himself. But if you read in the book, um, Great Controversy, God had different talks with Lucifer. And there were times he said, I'm kind of scared. I don't think I should do this. But then pride came up and says, nope, I'm going to do it. And until the Bible says there was no room found for him in heaven. Ezekiel chapter 28. 
Ezekiel chapter 28 continues this thought. Ezekiel chapter 28. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity is found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing. I cast you to the ground, verse 17 says. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. So God had to lay him down. But let's rewind the clock. Let's say, just for instance, that Lucifer said, okay, I was wrong. Okay, do it to me what you need to do. I admit I was wrong. What would God have done to him? Would he have crushed him? No. God would have raised him back up, and he would have been a better ambassador for God because he would have been a witness of God's amazing grace. That was his, that's what God wanted for him. God wanted to redeem Lucifer. He wanted him to see where he had made a mistake and said, I'm sorry, but he wouldn't. Pride would not let him do that. He would not. It's not that pride wanted. He chose not to do that. And so then God had to push him out. He had to. And it really, you know, whenever you look at it, whenever there is a vacuum of love, there's no need to be together anymore. It's just a complete split. But as long as there's love, there's that, inter- there's that working together. And God says, I can still work with this. With Lucifer, there was no love for God in his heart. He just set his will against God. He rejected God's grace, and so he had to leave. God showed grace to Adam and Eve because they did not have a full knowledge of God. God showed grace to Cain. God showed grace to Seth's children. God showed grace to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, the prophets and the kings, the rulers in the days of Christ, and to the Gentiles. God has been working time and time and time and time again to show his grace to these people. Some of them get it. Some of us get it. Some of us don't get it. But God is continually showing his grace because he wants nothing more than more of his children to be there in his kingdom. God's grace is bigger than the universe. 400 billion stars in our galaxy, 100 billion galaxies that are known to mankind right now, and there's more always being discovered. God is the ruler of the universe, but he wants to be ruler in our hearts. He wants us to trust him. So whenever some difficulty comes, we can go to him. Look what Daniel and his three friends did. As soon as that whole issue about diet came up, they said in their hearts, we're not going to do it. We're going to go back to God. The text we read for the um, scripture reading this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I purposely don't put the quotes in my notes, so I have to look it up. So if I slow down a little bit, it's because I'm trying to find it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his what? His great love with which he loved who? Us. It's all about his relationship with us. 
He wants us to submit our wills to him. And when we do, sometimes it's not a full, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, God. Sometimes it's just like, you know, I think he's got a point. Whenever God interviewed all the angels before some of them had to be expelled to Lucifer, he interviewed every single angel. And there were some that said, you know, I don't think there's something right about this whole thing Lucifer's talking about. I'm not leaving. God, I'm going to go back with you. I don't understand it. And you read what Mrs. White says. There were times when the angels in heaven even said, Lord, how much longer are you going to let this mess go on on earth? And God says, trust me, I've got this. And not too long after that, Jesus came down. And then they really said, Lord, look what you're doing. Your son's down there. I've got this. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there was angels like, let us know. This has to be. Just like Jesus told John the Baptist, suffer these things to be so for now, because it's for God's glory. So whenever we look at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, there's a question there that we can close on. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7. And it's all about who is in our focus? Who is our primary focus? Verse 6 says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with loud voice, Fear God. What does fear mean? What does fear mean? Reverence. Have reverence for God. Make God your God. And give glory to him. Give him the glory. Let him take the credit for all the good things he's doing. So fear God. Give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship. We've got a dog that loves to worship. You know what worship means to a dog? Lick. Our dog drives some of our family crazy, but she wants to lick your hand. Or if you're laying in bed, she wants to lick whichever body part is closest to her, whether it's your ear, your face, whatever. Right, guys? She loves to lick. Like, dog, what is the problem? (laughs) Worship is submitting yourself to your master. Who is our master? Christ. We're not, he's not saying lick, but it's that submission. How's it, you know, The dog is genuinely submitting to us through that worship. God wants us to worship him. Why? He made the heavens and the earth. He put the earth here. He put the sun here. He put Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, the blank spot, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune out there, all the stars in the, the void called the asteroid belt. There's another asteroid belt called the Kepler belt. That's just our solar system. He made that. That's his fingerprint. If you ever see these things on some evolutionary video, whatever, it's got God's fingerprints all over it. He made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water and everything that's in them. That has his fingerprint on them. Worship him. Why? Because he's got good goodies for us, like, Sometimes in the elevator, there's goodies back there, kids. No, we don't worship him because of the goodies. We worship him because he loves us, and we can return that love to him. So who do we reverence? Who do we give glory? You know, I've got a cool a phone. I'm not worshiping it. It's fun to talk to it and ask it, you know, tell me about Copernicus. And it starts rattling things off. Tell me about, you know, all the Aristarchus of Samos tells me all this stuff. It's just information. It's it's a tool. Who do we worship? Who do we love? Who do we give reverence for? 
Accepting God's grace begins a new life in Christ. Whatever our relationship with Christ is right now, when we submit our wills to him, when we accept his grace, because his grace is greater than the universe, but there's no room for his, in his grace, and as big as the universe is, there's no room in his universe for sin. Think of that. There's no room in all of that for sin. Can you imagine if Lucifer had his way? He would have sent Jupiter right on the collision course with Earth and taken us out a long time ago. He wants to destroy us, and God says, no, you're not going to touch mine. He is saving us for something better, better than all this other stuff that's going on that the devil tries to bring up among us. God has a focus for us, and I believe this church is in the center of his focus, and we need to submit our wills to him, submit our characters to him, have the Christ-like character like Jesus did when he was just a little guy, the divine influence of the heart, on the heart, and its relationship in the life. That's what God wants for us, because when he can use us, he's going to take Daniel and his three friends are going to be way back there. He's going to push us way forward, but we have to submit. Otherwise, we're going to turn the whole universe on God, and he's going to have to say, I can't, there's no place for you in my home. So God has a great plan for us, and that plan begins with us whenever we accept Christ. And like that video that Gunther showed last week, whenever we let the cross crush us, crush out sin in our lives, God begins his work in us. Let's sing our closing song. It's amazing grace, right? (laughs) I got confused on the numbers, I'm sorry. Number 108, I believe, number 108.